We start, though, talking about housing, and certainly we have been hearing from BC's new Premier, David Eby, making announcements and talking about what he plans to do when it comes to having more housing supply, more rental housing becoming available for people as well. So let's bring on Mike Bernier, who is the BC Liberal critic for housing, to talk about that, as well as a newly released report. Mike Bernier, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, thanks, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, you sent out as well, uh, the BC Liberals sent out a report uh, that takes a pretty close look at uh, Atira, which is a, a housing uh, a company or a, a group that's been specifically or mostly in the downtown east side uh, for many, many years, the Atira Women's Resources Society, uh, raising some concerns about that. Can you tell us a little bit more about this report? Yeah, well, we, recently we had a, uh, a report uh, that came out due to a whistleblower uh, who commented and uh, talked about the fact that uh, an accounting firm, BDO, uh, was retained uh, because of it. To look at the financials of Atira, and uh, a lot of concerns, a lot of red flags, obviously, were coming out of this. Uh, the main thing was is uh, a $41 million budget to Atira with, uh, I think it was about 7 or $0.08 cents, uh, uh, per dollar was actually going to housing. The rest was going who knows where uh, and even in the uh, report that came out um, that was leaked out it showed that there was incorrect incomplete misleading information uh, that the board was uh, making poor decisions uh, with without having uh, proper documentation or information which was leading to mismanagement of taxpayers money being spent and not the housing supply being built that was promised. There are parts of this report that look very similar to the report we saw recently put out by the Vancouver Police Department, which wasn't only looking at Atira, but was looking at a lot of the service providers. And as you know, it was widely criticized for not focusing only on the downtown east side. But certainly there are some parallels to this agency and some of the other agencies and these concerns raised. Would you would you agree that, the, that there are some similarities or we're starting to learn a bit more? about kind of the accounting and what's happening in specifically in that part of the province? Yeah, there are a lot of similarities I'm finding uh, as, as information is coming out. And I think the main issue is the lack of real leadership and oversight that's coming from government. They, they want to keep announcing more money going to groups, but there's no results. We're not seeing the housing being built. We're not seeing the people uh, being helped. So the RCMP flagged some of those concerns, but even not that long ago, Ernst & Young um, was contracted to actually do a full look at uh, BC Housing, who gets billions, with a B, billions of taxpayers' dollars a year going to BC Housing, uh, and they even found out uh, through all of that that the entire BC Housing board and association was in utter chaos. Decisions were being made with no oversight. Uh, in fact, there was even information saying that uh, Selena Robinson and David Eby, who were ministers of housing at the time, um, were aware of a lot of the problems, uh, but actually doing nothing about it and just burying it, which is unfortunate. Following that report, though, the Ernst & Young report, uh, David Eby, did, uh, did he not fire the entire board at BC Housing? Yeah, it's interesting to watch this because uh, we have to remember that the board is appointed uh, by uh, the government. So a good portion of this board was appointed by uh, the NDP government. Then this report came out. Uh, they fired a bunch of the board. Then after that, a whole bunch of the board started uh, resigning. Uh, you can imagine 
uh, why. Uh, with all of these concerns that are being raised of uh, financial mismanagement uh, within the organization, and now there's a new board, uh, some board members, and we're seeing that the trend is just continuing. Uh, now that we see this new uh, BDO report saying there's still mismanagement and uh, misappropriation, it looks like, of taxpayers' money. The BDO report, though, is from November of 2018. So how can you be sure that what's happening now is the same with the, the changes that we've seen since then, that what's happening now is what was also identified in the report? Yeah, I mean, we we continue to see these um reports coming out, but we're also getting contacted by a lot of uh, staff members, or I should say in a lot of cases, former staff members who are letting us know that, uh, you know, a lot of these things are are still going on, that there's a lot of uh, oversight lacking, but it's really obvious when you look at the lack of uh, money that's actually going out the door uh, appropriately to build the housing stock that uh, we need. Look, there's uh, no argument uh, from our side of the house that, that we need more housing. Uh, what we're talking about, though, is let's get results. Let, let's get that taxpayer's money out the door and build the, uh, the affordable housing that's been promised. Uh, David Eby, even before he became uh, was sworn in as premier, uh, told basically told cities and municipalities, and this was in the legislation or the, the, the one of the very first announcements he made. The housing announcement was: you need to build housing stock. You need to offer up reports. Is your city or is your municipality keeping up? Are you meeting demand? Are you doing everything you can to build this housing? And if you're going to have it bogged down with red tape, the province is going to step in and they're going to make sure this happens. Uh, would you like to see? him take that same approach with agencies like Atira or the agencies that are tasked with building housing for the most vulnerable? Absolutely. Today in question period, what we called for was for the Premier to do uh, a call for a full audit of uh, Atira, of BC Housing, so we can actually get to the bottom of this because we're talking about important programs that we've all supported for trying to build affordable housing, um, whether, you know, market housing in some cases too, rental stock, like all of these things we know are much needed uh, in our communities, especially around uh, the growing lower mainland municipalities. The problem is, is there's no accountability that's taking place for how that money is being spent. Uh, a lot of money is either not being spent at all or being spe- spent without proper results. Uh, so I think it's also important that, you know, when we talk about municipalities, that the government also uh, looks in the mirror because uh, they could be a big part of the solution, I think. Why is it Atira, do you think, that's being focused on? Or I'm imagining there maybe are other reports out there and maybe only this one has been released. Again, it's from November of 2018. But why do you think there is such a focus on Atira? Well, in this case here, you have to remember there's $41 million uh, in the annual budget uh, that was going to, to Atira. There's a lot of um, a lot of discussion out there of the board that's running Atira and their close relationship with uh, the past uh, senior executive of BC Housing. Uh, and so that relationship, I think, also highlighted some of the, the nuances uh, that need to be addressed, which is why we called for an audit to be done. Uh, when you have uh, a company that has those close personal relationships with each other and money uh, flowing back and forth without proper due diligence or accountability. Uh, you're talking about the, the CEO of Atira and, and being married to somebody uh, with, uh, at a very high position at BC Housing? I may be alluding to that, absolutely, Joe. <laughs> and w- which, on the surface, doesn't doesn't mean any wrongdoing or anything anything bad, but I, I get what you're saying, that there needs to be transparency, right? 
Yeah, I mean, that's the big part of this is, uh, you know, when you have boards at Atira who don't even want to publicly announce, uh, even though it's taxpayers' money, they don't want to publicly disclose what they get paid. Uh, when you have a $41 million budget and only seven and a half cents per dollar are actually going out the door to help people, where's the rest of that money going? Uh, and that, that again, lends itself to why we're saying an audit needs to be done. Uh, I'm not in a position to say uh, at this time that there was absolute wrongdoing, but if that's the case, then everybody should be open to a transparent audit and publicly disclosed information. And Mike, I'm curious as well, uh, shifting a little bit to what we've heard from Premier Eby the last couple of days as far as housing, uh, a couple of the things he's announced uh, getting a lot of attention, the removal of rental restrictions in most cases for strata corporations, uh, this moving ahead with more housing. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I mean, it is getting mixed reaction, but a lot of the reaction I'm seeing is, well, at least it's something. Yeah, I mean, the big thing, especially around the strata act uh, changes there's there's some components of it i could absolutely uh, consider uh, supporting especially some of the ones where we have age restrictions it is completely unacceptable uh, that you could have a young couple uh, living or renting uh, a a property in a strata situation who you know then uh, through the graces that they choose to get pregnant and then told they have to move out because they're now having a kid and they're not allowed Uh, you know when you look at some of those I think, you know, we need to move uh, and definitely have supports in those situations. But I I will say, though, it's been very mixed on a big portion of the Strata Act. A lot of people in Vancouver area who live in Stratas are contacting me completely opposed to the direction of uh, unilaterally at a government level allowing Stratas or telling Stratas that they now have to allow rentals when people may have purchased uh, that property knowing that there wasn't and there could be effects on their the market value. It's also important, though, when you look at that, you know, we have about a million stratas in British Columbia, and there's only 2,900 that the Premier himself acknowledged that claimed the vacancy speculation tax that may or may not be considered as opportunities for rentals. So we're talking, you know, way less than 1% uh, that could be even available, and that's only if, the people um, who use those units part of the year agree to rent it for part of the year. So it's very uh, convoluted and the, the information is really lacking on how this will help people. All right. So we'll have to leave it there for today. Mike Bernier, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely, Joe. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday. Well, Vancouver City Council is meeting today and it's expected there will be a vote on a motion. And this was very much a part of the civic election campaign. It is a motion to hire more police and mental health nurses. There are some concerns about this plan, but as you may have heard, Mayor Ken Sim campaigned on that promise to hire 100 more police officers as well as 100 nurses for programs that would include responsibility to non-emergency mental health calls. So that is being debated and there is expected to be a vote on the plan. It's expected to cost about $20 million a year, but already there are some questions about this and what exactly it would look like. Joining us now to talk a bit more about this is Stacey Ashton, chair of the BC Crisis Line Network. Stacey, thank you so much for being with us. You're very welcome. Uh, before we get into this particular plan, can you tell us a little bit, the BC Crisis Line Network, what the network does and and kind of the role that it, it plays? 
Absolutely. So uh, the BC Crisis Line Network are 10 crisis centres across BC who take uh, the 1-800-SUICIDE and 310-6789 mental health calls, uh, as well as our local crisis lines. Uh, so we, uh, we speak to people who are in crisis hundreds of times a day, and we really focus on keeping people in control of their lives while we help them de-escalate what's going on for them and sort out their next step. So would there be scenarios then when someone has called the line or lines and they are clearly in a position of danger, whether it's they're mm-hmm. in a dangerous a position physically in danger or in danger of hurting themselves? And then, then how do people mm-hmm. respond to those calls? About 2% of our calls uh, require an in-person response. And right now we're only really able to, to connect them to a police response. Um, that's not usually what our callers want, but it's the only option that we have. Uh, and, uh, and, and our, our, uh, our proposed model would, be, uh, would allow us to have more options when that's coming up. And what options would you like? So uh, the model we're proposing incorporates crisis lines as a fourth option to 911 and uh, and kind of moves all crisis mental health calls through a crisis center so we have a chance to de-escalate. And then in those in-person responses, we would send a a mental health professional, uh, often with a peer support worker, um, with police backup if, if it's needed. But in the places where this model is in place, that's only needed about one in 100 calls. Call out. Uh, so there are jurisdictions then that have models like this that are working? Yeah, absolutely. Toronto and down in the States as well. Okay. Uh, so when we look at what Vancouver Council is debating and looking at, and again, this was a campaign promise by uh, the mm-hmm. new mayor that 100 more officers and 100 more nurses for programs, and this would be specifically for non-emergency mental health calls. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, the non-emergency mental health calls have kind of already been vetted as there's not a, a an immediate pressing mental health concern. So we're not talking about uh, violence in a non-emergency call. Um, and the idea of sending police is often based on an assumption that people in a mental health crisis are dangerous and out of control. So we've already established that's not the case. It's a non-emergency call. Um, so having a police presence at that call, it uh, it gives the impression that um, that this person is dangerous, and that's just obviously not the case. Right. But do you know for sure, and and I get what you're saying, it's a very small percentage of calls where it's decided right away that a police response is required. But Mm -hmm. for dealing with a mental health call, and and if it's not something as obvious as the person has a a weapon with them or Mm -hmm. or is in a position to harm themselves or somebody else, how do you know that it, it couldn't potentially escalate to that? Uh, in any situation can can escalate, but you know, like I could get into a car accident every time I get into my car, but I still drive, right? So right. any any situation has risk. The issue here is that um, people who are in a mental health crisis already feel out of control, and the way to resolve that crisis is to get them back into control. When police are on the scene, they are in control, um, and the role that police play in a mental health emergency is they can take you to hospital without your consent. Our goal is to work with people to make sure that they're consenting and in control of everything that happens to them. And so it would only be in the rare instances where you're not able to uh, come to a consensual uh, arrangement where you might want to bring police in 
and have that person taken to hospital for their own safety. Um, but that's it really in a very limited number of cases in the in the stats we're seeing maybe one in a hundred actual in-person person responses require that. So it's really quite an overinvestment in a really uh, expensive model of mental health care. Are there scenarios, do you think, where even shifting uh, the control model, kind of when if a police officer and a mental health nurse was to arrive to a call, uh, is there a position where, I, and I get what you're saying, so it's it's whether it's perceived or it's actually the case with the police officer being in control, if the police mm-hmm. officer wasn't, if the police officer was kind of held back to to only be there as backup if needed, and it is all the mental health worker or the mental health nurse that takes mm-hmm. the call, would that make it different? Uh, yeah, and so those are those are situations where you don't need a hundred police and a hundred psychiatric nurses, right? Because if you're looking at one in a hundred, you maybe need a hundred psychiatric nurses and one police. They're not going to need to be called out that often. Um, so. So there are you want to have that as a backup, and you also recognize that police may show up at a call and it turns out to have a mental health component, and then you want them to be able to um, give lead on that situation to a mental health professional. So that, again, we're focusing on keeping that person in control of their own lives, which is what's going to resolve the crisis. Is it a difference too then as far as how a call comes in in that we do have, don't we, some scenarios where uh, in Metro Vancouver where mental health workers are called out, but but is it mm-hmm. perhaps it's not when somebody has called 911 uh, to say, oh, my neighbor is in a, a state of crisis or oh, I see somebody outside and it looks like they're they're having an issue. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if it goes through 911, does it automatically then go to police and not to uh, per, perhaps a different department or a mental health worker. Yeah, correct. Right now, if it goes to 911, it goes directly to police. And there really isn't an opportunity to explore that situation over the phone and and de-escalate. So that's where diverting those calls, those mental health crisis calls to a crisis center allows us to just slow things down, talk the situation through, figure out what that person wants to do next. And that's why we have such high diversion rates from police, because very often that person needs to just figure out what they want to do um, and what's going to keep them safe as opposed to having somebody else come in and, and make them safe by force. Right. So how do you see this this playing out then as far as is there still an opportunity, do you think, uh, if council does approve this plan, uh, to talk more about, about how it might work best and how to better deploy resources to help everybody involved? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope so. I think there it, it doesn't hurt to take a little bit of a, a a time to figure out if that's really the best investment of, uh, of essentially what they're looking at is what six million dollars of investment, four point five million of that to police. Um, you know, is that the investment that that is actually going to help folks in a mental health crisis um, who have already been uh, have come through a non-emergency line, right? So that they really could be handled on a non-emergency basis.
And I know you touched on this as well, and that idea of either trusting police or being okay with interacting with police, or there are people as well who have legitimate trust issues and 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 do not respond well when seeing a police mm-hmm. officer. For, for the, that police officer could be the nicest person on the planet, and given somebody's mm-hmm. background, maybe they just don't respond all that well. So how do we how do we kind of fix that as well to 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 make it so people don't respond negatively just by seeing a police officer? Well, if you really think about it, right, like when I uh, have an interaction with police, it's because I've been pulled over because I'm probably doing something wrong in my car or or I've had or the police knock on my door and I open it and I don't know what's going on. But it's probably I'm either in trouble or there's some bad thing happening in my community that they want me to to talk to them about. Um, It's always anxiety provoking. Mm -hmm. So and if I'm feeling out of control and police show up at my door, it's it's embarrassing. It's anxiety provoking. For some folks, it can put their housing in jeopardy because it just makes you look like a bad tenant. Um, There's just a lot of downsides and there's not that many upsides for it being a police intervention. Right. And does it go back? And I know this is not c- completely uh, related to this, but we've also spent a lot of time talking about school liaison officers and that in a lot of cases, that mm-hmm. is the first uh, interaction people might have. And it's mm-hmm. not because you've done something wrong. It's because there's an officer who's who's in the school. Is that a way perhaps? Or do we do we not look at the value of that in having healthy early relationships with police officers? I think it it does come back to well, what role do you want police to have, right? Mm-hmm. Like their 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 role is really to to enforce public safety and uh, and to enforce the rules. And so, as long as you think you're following the rules, you should be fine. But the police are are you know, they don't have to be your best friend. Right. No. And it's up to them how they're going to respond to you in any situation. So I think it's reasonable to say that police have been involved in mental health crisis in the first place because there was no other option. But they're just not the best option for that. So so there's not a lot of upside to getting people to not be afraid of the police if you are in a psychiatric crisis or a mental health crisis and the police show up at your door, right? Right. I, I'm, you know, imagine I'm in a mental health crisis. The police have shown up at my door. I'm already highly anxious. I'm not going to have a rational response, even if I had an amazing school liaison officer. No, and that that makes a lot of sense, and and I think we've kind of touched on this as well. In in any industry, in in every industry and, and workplace, there are people who are great at their jobs. There are people who aren't mm-hmm. so great at their jobs, and and the policing is no different as well. Nor Absolutely. should we expect every police officer would know the exact perfect way to to deal with a situation like yeah. that. Uh, Stacy, thank you so much for joining us. I know we'll be talking more about this in uh, the coming days and weeks, but thank mm-hmm. you so much for making the time for us today. Thank you for having me. 
Yes, we are talking about a new Ipsos poll. It finds the difference between whether or not people would prefer a charitable donation chosen by a gift giver or a charitable donation where they get to choose the recipient or if they just want the good old-fashioned traditional gift, something I can wear, perhaps consume, something I can experience. And it's pretty split And as far as where people are on that. What are your thoughts on the traditional versus more charitable donation options. Give us a call on the open line, star 9898 and 604-280-9898. Let's go to Jenny in Langley. Jenny, good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon, Jill. Uh, I'm a senior and I had just sent a text in our group chat to my children this morning and I told them that I would not be buying gifts for them or my grandchildren. There's about 17 of them. Um, and that I would be making a donation instead to the Langley Food Bank. They all are doing well enough that the kids don't need an extra toy that they'll play with for five minutes. I feel like my money is better served going to the food bank. And did you get any response from them? Yeah, two of my daughters responded already and said they thought that was lovely. And I also told them if they were thinking about getting us something to just to donate to their favorite charity instead. And that makes a ton of sense. And Jenny, what a great thing to do, especially during the holidays uh, to, to do that. And like you said, how many of us need another sweater or uh, another toy? If, if you're not in need of that, then why not kind of help out an organization like the food bank? Yeah, exactly. I mean, with inflation happening right now, it's just nice to be able to help the people that are actually in need. My kids aren't in need. They don't need anything. And neither do my grandchildren. So up until this year, though, were you buying gifts for all 17 grandchildren? Uh, Well, it's children and grandchildren. And last year was the first year I made a donation. Uh, Last year, I donated to an organization called Mothers Without Borders in lieu of presents to the kids and grandkids. Wow. And so this is the second year that I'm doing it, and I'm just going to keep doing it. So my one son... His feedback was that that was that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us how like, you really oh, well. feel, son. <laughs> and, and was that was that because he wanted liked opening gifts, or or he wanted you to still buy him things? Did he did he expand on why that yeah, sucked? N- no, he just. <laughs> oh, Jenny, your phone I cut. Out. Oh, sorry, Jenny, your phone cut out there. Sorry, what was his exp- oh. explanation? He didn't really give one. He just said it was the worst gift I could give to anyone. (laughs) (laughs) But I disagree, so it's okay. (laughs) Sounds like he's outnumbered in your family. Right? (laughs) All right. Well, Jenny, what a great thing to do, and great as well that most of your family is on board with that. Thanks so much for calling us. Yeah, thank you. Have a great day. You too. That is Jenny in Langley. We're asking you uh, your thoughts. Would you rather have a re- uh, receive a charitable gift from a family or friend or, or somebody who would normally purchase you a gift? Would you rather have a gift given in your honor or do you want that traditional gift? Do you want that sweater or what have you uh, under the tree or delivered to you? Star 9898 and 604-280-9898. As I mentioned before the break, uh, we'll take your calls for the next few moments. But as I mentioned, uh, Bianca Rego, who is producing the program right now, uh, we were talking about this before. And we were looking at this poll. And you also had uh, some interesting stories on the worst gifts perhaps you've received. Um, the worst gifts, I still can't really come up with them. I, 
Okay, I'll be honest. The worst <laughs> gifts I've ever received are, I'm not going to say who gave them to me, but it's a box of little mini shampoos mm. and conditioners and hand creams and even the little mini soaps from hotels uh, <laughs> that the person had been visiting throughout the year. And I continue to get that box of lotion every single year. Which, okay, I, I guess you think of that and go and think, well, may, why is the person giving you things that technically are free from hotels? <laughs> I, even, or, I didn't even consider that. Or you could think of, of this person's traveled around and is thinking about you when in these foreign places and is bringing you little mementos and that things that you can true. use. That is true. There is a nice sentimental <laughs> uh, aspect to those gifts. And it's fun because they all smell different. So you use them. I do use them. Yes, that that is true. I do use them. They are very useful. Well, that is that is good. You you told another story earlier. Maybe you don't want to share this one, but it 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 really brought home to me why you don't give living things as gifts to people. It's just oh, not a good hamster. idea. Oh, the <laughs> hamster story. Well, when I was about seven, I received. I I'd been begging for a hamster for years. I finally received the hamster. As and was it, was it a Christmas gift? It was, yeah, okay. as a gift for Christmas. Mm-hmm. I was over the moon and I decided that I was going to let it run around the house and play with it. And, and then it ended up under the stove. Oh, no. And we could not, we could not retrieve uh, poor Pippa, oh, the no. hamster. And so I was never given an animal as a present ever again. No, I guess not. And while you laugh about it now, I'm guessing seven-year-old Bianca oh, wasn't laughing about it so I much. I was devastated. I gave uh, Pippa a funeral. Oh, no. I put her in a nice box with some, like, a wheel that we had for her cage and <laughs> buried her with it and put a little stick, like a little cross Oh, it's not really a great Christmas memory, is no, it? No, it's not. Hmm. I was trying to think... Of, I'm pretty lucky. I get good gifts, but I do recall it was a couple of years ago I got as one of my gifts um, dryer balls. Oh, which I what? thought <laughs> and those are the things you put in the dryer with yeah. your towels and such, and they I, I guess dry them. I use them, but my and I didn't say this at the time because it's rude to not to not be thankful, which I was for getting yes. gifts. But my my thought on that was, you know. If I need dryer balls for my laundry, I'm probably just going to go get them for myself. Exactly. No need to wrap those up and put them under the tree. <laughs> you would think they're ornaments if they're all wrapped in wrapping right? paper and you open them. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's kind of up there with an ice cube tray. You don't it's, really need that as a gift. An ice cube tray would be an interesting choice. <laughs> it would be. Yeah. It I, would be. My friend, I was telling you about this earlier. I think the most innovative gift she innovative gift she gave was her significant other really wanted a bottle of Tom Ford perfume for oh, Christmas. Yes. And those are about $400, 4 to $500, and she did not have the income to do that. So what we did was go to every single store that sold Tom Ford and asked for the samples. Spanning from <laughs> Vancouver all the way to Abbotsford, we went to every single store, ended up acquiring enough of the samples to fill a bottle <laughs> of Tom Ford perfume. How big of a bottle? How much did this person end up getting? It was like, oh, I... I can show you with my hands. It was about like, I'm going to say one of the smaller bottles. smaller ones, okay. Not the big, gigantic bottles. A couple of ounces. A couple of ounces for sure. Like the smaller one you would get at the store. 
Hmm. And did the the people working at the counter at any point? I guess not. If you're going to a different store, they That's just figured we went the, to different the first stores. Store you've gone to <laughs> exactly. We beat the system. What did the person think though that the the Tom Ford perfume, which Four to five hundred bucks. So that's a that's a pretty expensive gift to be asking for. Exactly. But to get it, what did the person? How did they respond when it wasn't in the official Tom Ford they bottle? They thought it was hilarious <laughs> when we told them the story because he got what he wanted. Right. And we just did it in a very creative, fun way. And then he has a story behind the perfume. Interesting. Exactly. Interesting. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Jill. <laughs> Well, this is airing today. It is a new six-part series called The Bermuda Triangle into Cursed Waters, and it's going to premiere on the History Channel. But one of the reasons we're talking about this is because of something crews discovered while they were filming the series. And it was not what they were looking for. It was a piece of history. Joining us to talk more about this is Wayne Abbott. He's a producer, director, writer, as well as historical investigator. Wayne Abbott, thank you so much for being with us today. No problem, Jill. Well, I want to talk about the series itself uh, that focuses on the Bermuda Triangle, but I also wanted to check in with you because this is a pretty amazing story. Uh, You were part of the team searching the Bermuda Triangle for Second World War era aircraft, and you actually discovered parts of the Space Shuttle Challenger. Yeah, it's it's hard to believe. I mean, it's a six-part series, Every episode, really the focus is to find mystery wrecks and unknown plane wrecks and then try to identify them. That's, you know, and it all is tied up in the Bermuda Triangle. So we were searching for this plane called the Martin Mariner. It was lost on December 5th, 1945. And the divers went down and they did not find the 1945 wreck, but they found a bizarre section of something that looked like, at first, like a tiled floor. Um, but when they removed the sand, they started to get the feeling that they found something a little bit more extraordinary. And then we went through the process of identifying it. And indeed, it is about a 20-foot by 20-foot section of uh, the Space Shuttle Challenger that blew up in 1986. And so while that was happening, like you describing it kind of like a tile floor and, and removing the sand from this thing, what, what was the kind of the timeline from that discovery? Did you know what you were dealing with at the time? Uh, the divers were doing what we call reconnaissance dives back in March um, in shallower water. So the divers were just doing bounce dives. So they were just going down, searching. Because part of the show is that we have this wreck map that our lead diver, Mike Barnett, created. And he had multiple targets. And some of them were in shallower waters that you could actually just dive down. So that's what we were doing one day in March. And they came across it. They thought it was um, something special. And then they did a second dive in May. They had a sneaking suspicion what it was. Um, at this point, myself and my on-air partner, Professor David O'Keefe, we weren't out on the boat. We were just given word as of May when they confirmed it, um, when it was shown to a, uh, a friend of Mike's who was a space shuttle commander in the 1990s. But then we went through specific protocol at that point, going to NASA, and we let them control the narrative. Um, so that we did not announce it. So we went right to NASA, they confirmed it, and then they announced it like a week and a half ago. 
what was that like? Because I would imagine here you are and the, the team in this area that is known for hundreds, if not more than that, of ships that mm-hmm. have disappeared and going to NASA and saying, hey, uh, we're pretty sure we have a, a sneaking suspicion. We've got a bit of the, the Challenger from 1986. Yeah, it, it, it's the entire thing is surreal in a way because um again we are looking for world war ii rex all of a sudden our team part of our team is in nasa getting a confirmation and the words are haunting when the the representative from nasa turned to our team and said you discover challenger um and that was something that we did not think but again that's part of the shipwreck business i mean i've done a lot of shipwreck films all over the world and you never know until you get down there and it's these unexpected finds that are really special and this one was not only special, but it was humbling for the team because all of us are over 40. All of us knew where, you know, we, we knew where we were when we heard about uh, the challengers. So it was an extraordinary experience. I, I, and that was the first thing that kind of gave me chills when I saw this story. Like you, uh, I can look, think back and remember that moment when that happened. Mm-hmm. And then, then to, to read about and see this update today Uh, did you find out then or did you know at the time or did did it take a bit more study before you realized or it was confirmed exactly what part of challenger you had discovered we have a sneaking suspicion but nasa just they're they're going to go down and investigate it themselves and they haven't had a chance um so they don't want to announce it at this point until they're 100 percent sure all we know it's the bottom part where you the square tiles are actually the heat shields so it's some part of the, the, the bottom of the shuttle, um, and they're going to confirm it. I mean, I'm, a lot of people ask us, and you might even ask us, you know, what, what are they going to do with it? And I hope they do bring it up. Um, they have one section already in the Kennedy Space Center, and I think with, we've had worldwide press on this. Our divers have been talking to everybody in every country around the world because the Challenger story isn't just an American story. You know, seven Americans died that day. But it really touched everybody in the world. So I hope they bring it up and they place it in the Kennedy Space Center because that would be a wonderful thing for, uh, for, I think, the story of Challenger and just keep it alive. Mm, exactly. And do you know, I, I saw it described as one of the biggest pieces of Challenger that has been found. Are you able to say kind of how big of a piece we're talking about here? Yeah, I think I mentioned it. it's about 20 feet by 20 feet, and it is. I mean, the other, the only other two pieces that uh, I think were two smaller pieces that washed ashore in the mid-1990s. So this is the, uh, the first one that was discovered the way we did. And see, what shocked us the most is that we thought Challenger was all picked up. Even our diver, our head diver, uh, Mike Barnett, who lives in Florida, and he's dived a lot in this area, he thought that Challenger was all picked up back in the, the 80s, but NASA could only do so much. And, you know, they they didn't uh, they told us that um, there were there were pieces left behind and we found one of them. I think you're right. And, and most if you asked anybody, they would probably think, of course, it's it's all been picked up or, or would have been mm-hmm. would have been discovered by now. So is it still sitting where it was discovered Oh, yeah. We haven't touched it. I mean, we follow a very strict protocol when we do this stuff. It's left there. NASA knows the coordinates. We're not giving it up. We're not even giving the depth of the water. Um, It's the property of the United States of America. And uh, so we're going to let them now 
you know, control whatever happens to it. But as I said, I hope they do raise it. Um, and the other thing, too, is the, the reason why they didn't find it, and it's amazing that our divers found it, even though it's 20 by 20, that's a very small piece in a very big ocean, and it doesn't come off the seabed. So I, I still give kudos to our dive team that, you know, they found that because um, that's a really tough thing to find is a section that's flat on the seabed and is only about 20 feet by 20 feet. What was it? Was it that was a piece of it that caught somebody's eye or are you able to tell us what was it? Like you said, this, oh, it's, I think it's just that Michael, Michael's created this map. Michael Burnett created this map over 30 years. And a lot of it is based on, um, fishermen snagging their nets on things. A lot of times it's where fish collect. I think this one is this that we were lucky to take, they were lucky to take sonar over um, and picked up something. They knew it wasn't very big, but we were looking for a plane that probably exploded. So they were looking for little pieces of, of a plane. And I think that's why they came across it and thought, okay, this could be geology, it could be a rock. Um, but they were searching for smaller pieces of a larger plane. And I think that's why they noticed it. And then, you know, decided to do a reconnaissance dive on it, and the rest is history. So this uh, will become then part of the first episode, and uh, I imagine yes. changes things quite a lot, given what you were going out to search for and the idea for the series, and now quite a different first episode. Yeah, I mean, the, the viewers get a really extraordinary look at how our divers find it, and I think that's one of the best. Um, it changed up a few things. Unfortunately, a couple of my scenes got edited out. What can you do? <laughs> hey? I'll take one for the team. Um, but no, I mean, it, uh, it really just, I think, adds to the story. Um, and also, too, this isn't just a crazy Bermuda Triangle story. We do get into the bizarre, but really, this is a story with heart, adventure. Um, we even come across some wrecks later on where we, we tie them together with family members and give them closure. So it has a little bit of everything. So I hope people do turn into all six episodes. They're all very different. Uh, We find something in every episode um, and try to identify it. And uh, it's just been an extraordinary series to work on. And did it work out to obviously not the first episode? You weren't going out looking for Challenger, but like you said, you were going out looking for specific wrecks and planes that had gone yeah. down. How how many of the episodes actually turned out being about what you were going out to look for or also about <laughs> things that you happened to find while you were there? It's, it is, you've got to tune in, but let's just say <laughs> we had our list. And now our list is longer. Um, it's, again, with shipwrecks, even if you have coordinates, it's never what you, it never seems to be what you think it's going to be. So uh, we had a number of um, Bermuda Triangle uh, wrecks that we were searching for, and we uncovered stuff that we never thought. So it wasn't just Challenger. Every episode was like a, you know, a different experience. And every time we, you know, we went down there, we uncovered something that we weren't expecting. So that's part of the fun of the show as well. Well, I can't wait to tune in and see uh, the series. Again, it's a six-part series, The Bermuda Triangle Into Cursed Waters. Wayne Abbott, thank you so much for taking the time with us today and for talking about this. Uh, Thanks, Joe. I appreciate it.